0: Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Sunday Mint, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Ivovich. Hey Dan. Hello. This season's theme is parsing the particulars. Today we are joined by special guest Jason Stibbs, founder at Rockin and Cat, and we'll be diving into the particulars of LiveView. Hey Jason, how are you doing?
1: Hey, Sunday. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So you met our teammate Owen, another wizard on the podcast. And you gave a talk at ElixirConf about LiveView, but you had a very interesting take on it. Can you give us a quick spin on on what your talk was about and uh, who you are in the Elixir ecosystem?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so for those who know me, I'm Jason Stibbs. I'm Jared Grinn on GitHub. I've been using Elixir since almost the beginning. And I joined the Phoenix Core team at exactly the beginning when it was just Chris and a couple others. I think Gary was pretty early in those days, too. But Yeah, so I've been using Phoenix and Elixir for a really long time, mostly with APIs. I did a couple sort of static websites and several single-page web applications. My talk was kind of like, you know, I was one of the first people to see LiveView, like Chris sent me the very first demo, you know, when he was just working on it, kind of when it was in the nascent stages, it was just something he was hacking on. And I was pretty skeptical (laughs) when he first showed it to me. And it took me, you know, three, four years, and I mean, till now, roughly, to be all in 100% that I think this is something that we can use for any project. Yeah, that's kind of the premise of my talk. I kind of walked through my background and how, like, why I was so nervous initially and how I came around to it. My professional background is a, I do a consulting firm very similar to, not I guess, not too different than Smart Logic. We do custom development, web development, mobile apps. I've been doing that for about 11 years. And I'm one of the first people to put, Phoenix, probably irresponsibly put Phoenix into production, but it turned out to be a great bet. So wasn't actually irresponsible in hindsight but worked out.
0: <laughs> nice. It's interesting. I feel like a lot of people get presented with new technologies and are immediately like, "No, hold on." And just kind of have a knee jerk reaction. Was that sort of what happened to you or was was there a little bit of a more informed, "Ah, hold on." kind of decision happening there?
1: I wish my talk was available so I could send people to go watch it, but <laughs> it's not up on YouTube yet. But yeah, it was it was more of an inform- it was a little bit knee jerk, but it was more informed. So I, I've been writing, Doom web development for a really long time. I'm not sure. I used to do like C-sharp.net development with uh, a technology called Web Forms. But if you're not familiar, it's it's not too different than Live View, except for it was written for a C-sharp and .NET, you know, before threading and multiprocessing was a big deal. And, and .NET doesn't have an actor model or can't handle millions of processes. And But you would write all your code, all your web code in C-sharp, and you'd have like click handlers and button handlers and form handlers all in C-sharp. And it would it would use an incredible hack where it would take the entire state of the C-Sharp app, phase 64, and code it, and then put it on the web page and send it down to the client. And then whenever they did anything, clicked a button or browsed or did anything, it would take that giant blob and send it back up. And you could store that in like SQL Server or a file system instead as your session, but like that's how they did it. So I had a lot of experience with that model where you write web code, but all in the backend. Um, and initially when I first saw LiveView, it was a lot of flashbacks, <laughs> you know, a lot of like not so great memories and feelings. And there's several technologies that predate live view. They don't use WebSockets. Some of them do, but yeah, there's a lot of uh, things that are similar to live view. So I was familiar with the model and I was at the time, the whole world was like, we're doing react. We're doing single page web apps, get on the train, you know, the whole ocean. And everyone was like, this is the new thing. And don't, don't deviate. You know, it's funny to see like Dino or, or Deno and, other frameworks kind of come back to the server, and everyone's talking about islands and server-rendered pages, and I mean, it's just fun. It's weird to see how it's all cyclical, but and initially it wasn't as knee-jerk as some people's reaction was. I, and I go into it a lot more in the talk, but it it was informed by some not so great experiences.
2: I relate to a lot of what you said. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think we've been on you know kind of very similar journeys uh, over, over time, and the cyclical nature of this industry and, and technology and everything else is is always interesting to me. You know, and kind of where things are landing. And I, you know, for for some similar reasons, said you know, hey, let's like not go all in on Live View right away. We have patterns that have generally been working. React SPA is not one of them. We did some attempts at that, and that really wasn't. That had a lot of problems on, on its own. You know, and I think this past Elixir Conf, I, I unfortunately didn't see your talk. I'm looking forward to when it is available to see it. But you know, I, I think I finally kind of heard enough there, just generally, and and you know Chris's keynote and seeing kind of you know where things are you know i've kind of come come around on it quite a bit and we've done some more recent experimentation with it that i feel pretty optimistic about and certainly the feedback from the team is is strong but yeah definitely uh we're always a little little cautious to jump into things you know just to to make sure that it is going to to work for us in the long run and you know we've got applications we've been supporting you know 11 12 13 plus years and you know you make those tech choices and you you got to live with it yeah yeah, yeah you really do and part of what really changed my mind recently was
1: the functional components and you know having keeks be in line with your code and some of the stuff that's coming out just came out with Phoenix Live view with attributes and the accessors and the JavaScript API is just brilliant. I I can't remember if Chris came up with that or Michael came up with that or whoever came up with it, but I think that's just like an incredible hack. that maybe not hacks the right word, but an incredible API that we could do. and it just yeah I, and I had a chance to work with some younger engineers and developers and watch front end people learn live view and learn the experience with it like I still was using it for clients and customers and stuff when they requested it and stuff but it wasn't like I'm all in I'm going to do this for everything and I had a chance to work with some younger engineers who came from react in the front end and learn it and just to see how quickly they went from you know basically no elixir experience to a very Productive and like actually making things happen on the screen in very little time. That like you don't have that in React, you know. Like if you do, you have to like have mocked objects or like dummy data, and then hook up the API and you to do all this stuff just to to make it actually work. And I don't know, that experience really changed my mind and like opened my eyes to like, wait a second, this is actually something that we can totally do. And then I wrote a, a full project in Live View that just really kind of cemented it for me. I didn't really want to go back to React and the JavaScript.
2: Yeah, I think that that kind of first project is is key for a lot of people right and that can be the make or break right you can have that first project that goes horribly or you can have that first project that's super successful and like our first elixir phoenix project was you know it was like okay we this is you know it's a couple weeks to get this kind of mvp out if it goes poorly like we'll rewrite it in rails in about that same amount of time you know and so it was like all right now's the chance to give this thing a shot and that went Crazy well, and uh, you know, giving leaving active record behind was a a welcome change for me personally. So, you know, we've been more and more on the elixir spaces as as we can, and yeah, this whole show is because of that.
0: I want to ask you, Jason, how do you find yourself as a Phoenix core team member? I feel like we hear these words, and it just sounds like there's like a, a floating elixir logo next to your Twitter bio or something. Like, how does that happen?
1: Well, for me, you know, I was just at the right place at the right time. like you know, I was using Lecto and Phoenix and Elixir when they were not as good as they are today. So like I was finding bugs constantly. I was in an IRC chatting with Chris and Jone. I found a lot of bugs in the early days. like that was kind of the joke is just let Jason test it for a bit, and like you know I'll just figure it out. And I still quite find edge cases and there's just part of my brain where it's like when I find something like that, I just can't let it go. Like I have to figure out like why is it behaving that way. So like there's a lot of little more recently I haven't done as much with the Phoenix core team stuff, but like you know, I've just been around and I find bugs and I I try push Chris and Jose to, to think a little bit differently. But like anyone can be a part of the core team. It's just kind of I'd say it was more luck than anything. Like I was in the right place at the right time, helping out and doing stuff. You know, you look at the contributor graph, a lot of it's front loaded for me. It's not nearly as much as Chris, but you know, Chris is getting paid for it. But we recently added uh, Christian, I'd have to look up his name, did the, the storybook he did such a great job with storybook and we were going to do a storybook thing. And it's like, why should we do a new thing? We'll just ask him if he wants to to be part of the core team and work on it. And clay got recently added. It's not really like an official designation. People come and go, like there are people who will come and do a lot of work and then just kind of fall off and disappear. But you know, they're part of the core team still, I guess. And there's, you know, a slack or whatever, but it's really just a way to, to communicate about stuff without having to like post to the forum publicly and get a lot of public feedback before something's even baked or thought through already. You know, Chris and Jose are still doing the vast majority of work, but occasionally people show up and do a lot of work and then they kind of fall off or maybe some people stick with like one area and kind of work with it and help improve it. Like Gary has done a lot of work with, or Gasler has done a lot of work with the generators over the years and documentation as well recently clake joined because he was working on tree sitter all the tree for heeks and ex which is an nvm tree sitter comes from i think from rust for like formatting documents and and in, in your in neovim or and now in github it's use tree, uses TreeSitter uses tree sitter to format the the code for for all languages i think so he was just maintaining those and there's a lot of overlap with that and Heeks stuff and making heeks work so it was natural to bring him in but yeah it's it's not like some shattery, shadowy cabal or anything. It's just people doing stuff. And like, if you show up and do stuff in the, the GitHub issues or you help out with stuff and you're easy to work with, it's not hard to just add you to Slack.
2: Find bugs and be a good person. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's just, it's,
1: it's, it's, <laughs> it's not super meritocratic or whatever, like, or open, but it's, you know, Chris is busy. We're all busy. We all, we're all old now and have kids and stuff. It's like, if you're easy to work with and it goes well and you're not like, throwing bike sheds around and arguing about everything all the time. It's just, you know, makes things easier. It's open source. We're all doing this for free with the exception of Chris, I guess. But so it's like being easy to work with is important you know. and showing up. Yeah. You know, it's like half the battle, like, and being in the right place at the right time. Again, it's, I have interns and stuff who are like, how, how do you, how do you do open source? How do you get into it? And a lot of times it's, if you're not early in an open source project, it can be really hard to contribute at all because it's like, how do I join? How do I jump in? It's, just like lots of momentum and inertia, and decisions being made in channels, Slack channels and stuff, and IRC or mailing lists or forums or wherever. So, open source is tough. It's tough to get in, and I was just at the right place, at the right time, and happy to say yes. <laughs> yes, I'll do whatever. Yeah, so,
2: so now that you're uh, kind of more all in on the live view, what do you think is kind of the the big win, or you know what what particular features are you most excited about? What um, my big question is always, why isn't LiveView
1: 1.0? <laughs> Chris would love to hear that question. <laughs> I mean, why isn't Phoenix 1.0? Right? Or oh, is it is it 1.0? Or is it 0.17 still? Wow. I can't remember. Phoenix one yeah. one six something. I think. One si- okay, so it's one six and, and Phoenix is the 0.7. Yeah, that's a great. I mean, it's changed a lot, and in this version of Phoenix, the next version of Phoenix is going to be a lot more changes coming up with folder structure and the generators and how like for example views are kind of going away they're just kind of being renamed and changed a little bit but they won't be phoenix out of view anymore which i've always thought was mm-hmm. a mistake but yeah i mean i think the big win with live view in general is you know like when you're working with a mobile app or you're working the react spa like you have to do the communication and that's overhead right you have to put it on a websocket or you have, and you have to make an api usually of some sort and you have to decide like am i going to use graphql am i going to use json api like what is the wire format going to be what is the API going to be, are we going to, you know, or, you know, GP, GRPC or whatever, like, how am I going to say that I want to create this entity or this user or this post, edit this post, read this post. And you need to document it somehow. You need to communicate with the front end engineer, unless you were the front end engineer, I guess, doing all of it, which is fairly rare at these days, but like, you need to communicate that. And that's overhead, like, you know, straight up, like not even technical overhead. That's just human overhead, right? Whenever you're working with someone, even if you have a great rapport, you're going to, Need to communicate that this is the shape of my object. This is my expectation. Like even if you write the most perfect, you know, hideous API ever, like there's still going to be some part that's a little weird and a little different. I also am the, was a creator of one of the JSON API libraries for a long time. That's now part of the Beam community because I just didn't have interest in maintaining it anymore. So the Beam community is maintaining it now. So like I'm all in on APIs and like and I believe in that stuff and I think it's neat. But it's like with Live view, none of that. You don't even think about that. <laughs> it's not even a a half thought, you know. You just put your HTML together. You have your click handlers and stuff, and you you're going right. It, it's live. It's interactive. It's it's great. You don't have to think about JavaScript or JSON. Or, and that, like for me, that's the biggest win with Live View, is like all of the overhead of thinking. Like it's kind of a dream of Firebase without Firebase. You know, like you don't have to write an API. You don't have to think about an API, but you still are hosting it yourself. You can still deploy it like you're used to with you know a Phoenix project or a Rails project. You don't have to use some third party Google service or whatever. And I know they're super based and stuff, like there's other companies that are trying this, but like you get all the benefits of programming in the back end and doing a sort of static, dead website, which is, you know, a request and response. But you don't have to think about any of that. You can just write your code like that makes sense. And you get all the communication and back and forth for free. I think that's that's fantastic and great. And like people like me who have experience with HTML and CSS and I'm not afraid of, I've written a lot of React by, by incidents of just, you know, by the nature of being web adjacent, you end up writing JavaScript. So like, I'm not afraid of it, but like, it's just so much nicer. Like, you can just fly through. I've had customers and clients like estimate, like this is going to take weeks and weeks because that's how long it would take the React team to do. And then it's like, you're done in a day or two and it's just... <laughs> it messes up their planning, but like you, you feel pretty cool and powerful. But like it's just the nature of but like, you all that communication is gone technically and socially, like just it doesn't exist anymore. Poof, you see, so just I think that, that's the biggest one with live view personally.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I'm kind of in a similar boat as to how I'm thinking about this these days, right? Like it kind of brings you back to this full stack. You know, you can actually be a full stack engineer, right? Because you're, you know, you're only working in one thing and it works across the board. And, and I remember that was, you know, exciting about some early days in Rails. And then we wanted more and more interactivity. So we started pulling in more and more JavaScript. And then we swung to like SPAs and, you know, or a mess of jQuery or some combination of both. And this kind of brings us back, I think, to an interesting place and the the components. You know, how that lets us kind of the storybook stuff for me is particularly interesting, right? And just the ability to say, like, this is what things are going to look like. And now you have the building blocks to pull it all together, and you only need to know kind of one thing is particularly interesting and, and try to make sure that your designs and your displays of things are consistent and accessible and kind of have all the right pieces in them. And then an update in one place, you know, really has the potential of actually applying everywhere, which is like always the dream and is hard, you know, hard in practice. But the tooling here feels like it's pretty close to, you know, ready to go for some to for some of that to really, really potentially work. And of course, it all takes discipline. And I think part of the reason it's not one yet is that Chris wants to flexibility.
1: Like, we keep finding these easy ways to make productivity better and make it easier, like heeks templates and attributes and stuff. And if we were version one, there'd be a lot more pressure to not do those kind of breaking changes or forward changes as much. And I think Chris is still in the stage where like he keeps finding new ways to make it more interesting and fun. And maybe he's kind of getting into sort of the front end trap where it's like always a new big thing. But yeah, there's so there's just some neat stuff coming and I don't want to take all of Chris's steam. There's some stuff to handle the temporary assigns a lot more. You know intelligently and you know nicely and stuff with an API for like handling streams. So like when you have a long list of things and you don't want to store all of them in memory, you use temporary assigns. but it's a little awkward if you want to delete something in the stream or if you want to add something in a different spot, it's just a little bit weird to work with, and there's a new API, but it's you know I kind of had to get tabled for a little bit while we work on all the other stuff.
0: what you said about a lot of these new features and um what Chris is working on what the whole team is working on, it reminds me of this kind of thing that we get caught up in as developers where we really want something to be perfect before we ship it out. I even remember when LiveView was announced, I don't even remember what conference it was officially announced or was it... Like five years ago, whatever. It does feel like a long time ago, but I think I was at the conference after it was announced. And people in the audience started raising their hands and asking for like, Beta testing. They wanted to all be beta testers because they all wanted access to it. And I think Chris just started, just said like, "Oh, I'll just make it. I'll just release it." You know, something like that. Am I misremembering that?
1: For a long time, Chris operated with conference-driven development. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the conference would drive the features, and he'd be like. I don't want to get in trouble but, or make him mad or whatever, but he uh, he would just be like working a lot right before a conference to make sure he had a cool thing to show. Or, so like you know, when he said it was beta, it was probably like literally just think features and stuff that he had just like hacked together like the week before or then even maybe the night before. I can't remember. One of them he was very stressed about. I can't remember which one. Maybe It might have been that one. That was pre-COVID, I think, right? Back yeah, yeah, it was. And
0: that's, yeah. and that's why it's so long ago that my memory, I, I usually have a better mm-hmm. memory, but it's so fuzzy now. Oh, yeah. And so it's it reminds break. me, yeah. yes, yeah. but it reminds yeah. me that we do get into this cycle where we just want something to be perfect before we can kind of stamp the gold seal on it. And in this case, the 1.0. Yeah,
1: I mean, Chris is very good about not getting it. I mean, of most developers I've talked to, he's very good about just shipping. Like he's, a, he's exceptional at, sh- at shipping. Him and Jose in particular, I think, are very good at deciding this is ready to be won. So their instincts, in my opinion, are pretty good on that. But I think it's the way it is now. It's fine as long as you're willing to like follow upgrade guides and do a little bit of work when things get upgraded. Like I think you could just follow it. Like I'm maybe not a great example because I'm a perennial early adopter of stuff. So, like I'm always like living that life. But I don't think any of the change logs that we've ever done. Even some of the more ominous runs where people are complaining a lot. With I think the routes one, people complained just a ton for Phoenix back. I don't know if that's like five six years ago now, but most of them been pretty straightforward and even the live view stuff that's coming now is like it's fully backwards compatible and all the big changes for phoenix are fully backwards compatible so like you don't have to do the upgrades if you don't want so i think it's in a good spot where you could theoretically treat it as one it's just i don't i don't think he wants to stamp it with one quite yet like it's like you know if you know chris's backstory like he did essentially live view but in ruby and it, it was like a live embedded template for Rails. Like you could just say this part is live and it was essentially, essentially a lot of the same ideas as, as Live View. but like he had worked on Phoenix and channels and presence and all that stuff to get to this point. Like it's, he's always been working towards Live View and like this kind of API. And he's had that vision for a long time. So he's, uh, I think this is, if there is a baby in the open source world, this would be closer to it than all the rest of the things. But he's, him and Jose both have excellent like B1 when-is-something-to-be-one attitudes. like I think Elixir V1 was a very good, a great stopping point. And I don't even think there's anything I would want a V2 to really be for, like some small things that are just bugs, but you can't really go back in Elixir itself without doing a V2.
0: Right. I guess the question that I wanted to ask, which maybe is a moot point now, is what features do you think need to come to View to bring it up to V1? But I think we're saying it basically is there were there any features that we just put in there that kind of pushed us towards that feature completeness?
1: I think Chris could answer that better than I could because I think we could be one pretty soon here, personally. Like, but I mean, there's probably some attribute stuff that we want to get in. Like, there's I mean, once the attribute stuff gets in people's hands, there's probably going to be a thousand requests for like things that we didn't even think of and use cases we didn't think of. And there's almost certainly going to be some iteration on the attribute stuff just by nature of like it getting to the real world and people using it, and Chris using it, and everyone on the team using it.
0: For those who don't know what the attributes are, can you quickly explain?
1: Yeah, yeah. so very recent Phoenix release, we added uh, ATTR macro. It kind of works almost like a documentation, but you can put it above a render function or any sort of Heeks function. Let's say you have a, a class attribute, and you can say this is the default and you can override it but it's a it'll it'll generate the documentation and we can say it's required so like if you don't pass in a class attribute when you use the component it'll throw an error at compile time or you can you know do different types like integers or strings or i don't know there's a bunch of different types and you can set defaults and globals and it's just a really nice thing to have for documentation purposes but also just like So when you're using a component or you make a a library of components, it makes the usability of the, of the component system a lot clearer. Like you don't have to go read the code to see what attributes are passed in. You can just try to use it and see, Oh, you got a bunch of errors because I didn't pass in the correct attributes or the right types of attributes. So that's what the attribute handler is. And it also will generate documentation. And like, you know, so when you do ex doc, it'll just show up there and say like, these are the things you have to pass. So things that you wouldn't have before because it was just an assigns blob. And you know, there's, it's all you know, type system light essentially. Um, so that's that's the attribute thing. And then you know, there's the path that's a the Phoenix change is coming where you can do till the P for routes and stuff. I've been on that saying we should be doing that since like the very first version, because I've always hated the routes helper and routes handlers, but it's like a handover from Rails and Chris was a little bit proud of his his macro.
0: The mixed phx.
1: Yeah, yeah. So like you know, if you have like a, a git users it'll be like users underscore path function that it'll generate. And you have to remember how it generates paths and why. Like, So if it's like a company slash ID slash user, it'll be company user path or something like that. And you just have to remember like this is how it generates it or you have to look at, call that mix helper.
0: I do or, call that mix helper a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even Chris gets it wrong like every time. I've been saying since the very beginning, we had to get rid of it. So that's one of my, my bugaboos. One of my other my bugaboos was date times. I always thought Elixir should have date times way sooner. But we eventually mm-hmm. got it. And I still think JSON or JSON should be merged in, but I've given up that argument entirely now. <laughs> but yeah, that, so the path helpers is a huge thing that's just going to make everyone's life way better. Like, in, yeah, that's so that's going to be so nice. Especially for contractors and consultants who do like a lot of projects or generate new projects on often as opposed to like long-term maintenance of projects. That's not really live you. That's more Phoenix. Sometimes I get... In my brain, they're like all the same. <laughs> so we can call tough. this
0: behind the scenes of Phoenix and Live View instead of Phoenix sure. Live yeah, View. Yeah. What do you say? Yeah?
2: Sure. Yeah. I think that yeah. lack of distinction is what makes some people nervous, right? Like people who like Phoenix are like, oh live view is gonna ruin my Phoenix. I
1: mean, they may not like this next update, yeah. but I don't think it's gonna ruin your Phoenix because like there's nothing stopping you from just using Phoenix as you do today. Like I mean, you could use Mm Heeks templates or you could use EX templates for not stopping you or making you choose. Like, I think the experience will be a lot better if you use Heeks. For me, the distinction is harder because I'm in them both and using them both and thinking about them both. Mm -hmm. But I think for, you know, Chris and for Chris, who's working on a lot more and in it a lot more, it's distinction is clear.
2: Right. Do you see like projects that are kind of mixed, you know, where you'll have, you know, I can't believe I'm going to use the word dead views and live views. Yeah that was actually the project that kind of convinced me. Cause
1: I, I started it that way where I had just a couple mm-hmm. very interactive pages that I made into live views and it was all the rest were dead views. Um, mm-hmm. And I started with the live views because they were kind of the riskiest part. And I wanted to de-risk the project before I did all of the other stuff. And those went so quickly and, and easily and like smoothly, like just making those pages just as live view that I started making my, you know, quote unquote dead views into live views. And it was just literally a mount function that loaded some stuff and then render like, and then it, that was it no interactivity so i could have just made them temporary assigns and just rendered it because like the interface of working with components and working with function components and having just a module full of buttons and links and h like it was just so nice to to work with and use that i didn't want to go back to ex or i mean now i could have used Heeks i guess in this most recent version but at the time we didn't have great backwards compatibility for using them in both but either way, it just was a much. And then I found out like, oh, I want to do a modal. And I'd already done a modal in my live pages. And I wanted to use those in my dead pages. But it, you kind of need a live view to do it. And then I told Chris that we should make JS work without live view. And now it does work without live view. But at the time, it didn't. So I, had, I really had to use live view.
0: Modals were my actual enemy for a little while. Yes. Because yes. I couldn't make it work in Phoenix without either JavaScript or turning it into a live view. I mm-hmm. went down a really bad rabbit hole. Every time I, I searched for it, I think I've even talked about this before, it was so traumatizing for me. I was searching <laughs> for like how to make a Phoenix or a modal in Phoenix, and I got live view results only. Always, it was a bad time. I think we ended up just yes. scrapping the modal. because <laughs> yeah. I don't think we wanted to write the custom JavaScript for it. It just like didn't make any sense, and the feature was just so small.
1: That's exactly how I felt. Yes. That, yes. See, and that and that feeling is like, in my opinion, is to, if you're trying to get an open source, like when you have those feelings, like those are things that need to get fixed, in my opinion. Like, as authors of libraries of Live View, and like we should, if any user has that experience that you're exactly describing, we need to fix it. Mm-hmm. And whenever I have that feeling, I, I yell at Chris. Basically, I was like, "This is wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is not. We can do better." Like, and that's a, my that's my argument is we can do better because we can. Like, what's stopping us? You know, there's no, usually there's no technical limitation. It's just our decision. To do we want to make it work in life? You And now it worked. You can use, I believe you can use, and I may just be talking about Chris, and you know, things that we've talked about maybe for the future, but I believe you can use the JS API now. Just, you know, sort of the Phoenix.js or PhoenixLiveView.js with dead views now, because there's no reason you need a live view to make those things work mm-hmm. in theory. And I believe you can do it. I should hope I may be getting in trouble after this. Actually, let's ask him. <laughs> asking, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Especially in Acto, I felt like I had a lot of times with early days with Acto where it's like this can be better. This doesn't feel good. This sucks. We can do better. And eventually, like Acto was extremely difficult <laughs> problem space. But eventually, it just kept getting better and better. You know, and those were the kind of bugs I would report. And we would like for a long time the the whole entire query API like and and or and. Some, and all those functions that you can only do inside of a where or a join just were not documented. They weren't generated anywhere because it was part of a macro, and it wasn't easy to, for ExDoc to do it. And I would just complain constantly. I was like, "We have to show this. We have to show this. Like this is terrible." Eventually, we Jose figured it out. You know, because Jose is a genius.
0: Yeah, people didn't know what options they had for that function. Okay. Oh yeah,
1: you, you had to read the source code. Like in early days of Ecto. I guess. But like, I, I feel like if you ever have that experience, you should say something to someone. Like because we can make like there's nothing stopping us in Elixir and Ecto specifically for making things better. Occasionally, there's hard limitations because of the runtime or the way macros work or something, but it's very rare. Like there's almost always, like, because we have such an expressive language in runtime, we can do
2: almost anything to make our user experience better, the dev user experience better. That's something that's like great about this, this community, these languages, these open source projects, right? Is it like, like poor user experience is considered a bug? There's a room for improvement there. And and I, and I do understand that motivation of the hesitation on going 1.0 or, you know, to kind of doing those things of like, you know, if we can still improve experience and if it's going to require refactoring and a bunch of other things, like, let's hold off, let's get it right. And, you know, I, it's it's funny just because, you know, only a few weeks ago at, at Elixir Conf, I was like, okay, I think, I think I really do see this, right? And it's, you know. It was the, a good moment. A lot of the team's very happy um, <laughs> but you know the, the functional components and, and some of that and you know I appreciate what you're saying on the the kind of mixed projects and you know kind of using it a little bit and, and, and pulling it in and we're seeing some productivity gains already and and that's that's awesome you know I, I think that's, that's really great. Yeah and it's hard to go back like once you're productive and you're feeling good about it, it's like once you can
1: just like use your function components in a live view and it just works and then you don't want to go back to like, I don't know if you, if you remember like how we used to do rendering templates where you have to do like what is you know, pound percent equal or yeah, percent equal you know, render and then you have to do template name and then you have to do some view string, like the string.html mm-hmm. and then pass the assigns mysteriously as the third argument and there was no compile time checking or anything. Like that's just not an easy way to do reusable templates and stuff, right? That, that total hangover from Rails eh, yeah, just the way it was because that's how Rails did it, right? Like you know, credit where credit is due. Like a lot of Phoenix had a lot of advantages that we could just this is the Rails API, we'll just do that because, you know, Rails did it. <laughs> so like, why can't we do it? Now it's kind of flipped where Rails is just copying us blatantly and
2: <laughs> not, not not
1: giving us credit, maybe.
2: Well, and I think what was important there too is like it provides an on-ramp for people when you're talking about a new language, a new community, a new framework, right? Like, you know, part of our decision to move to Elixir as a company was, well, you know, we have we're doing a lot of Ruby. We're doing a lot of Rails. We can hire for those people, and those people can learn this, and they want to. It's a huge advantage, right? And you and you get that familiarity. You're like, this feels familiar, but also better, you know. And now, you now you just got to keep keep pushing forward, and, and kind of hopefully people come along with you. And I think uh, I'm I'm happy to see that this thing that has felt like a it is taking this framework in a direction that I'm not sure I'm okay with. I'm glad to now say like, okay, I'm I'm starting to feel okay with it, you know, personally. Yeah, that
1: was kind of the point of my talk, where it's like. I was wrong. You know, I think it's important, too, is, as an industry, we're very, like, overconfident always about the decisions we make. And often the decisions are just like, you know, someone on Twitter said we should use this, so we're using this. Like, and then we back justify, like, oh, it's fast and whatever. Like, we don't often go back and say, well, maybe React was a mistake. Like, maybe some of the decisions that the React team made were a mistake for us. Like, we were not comfortable doing that. And I think as an industry, we should get better at doing that. Like, we made a mistake things are better now or if we can do something better differently and why do we make a decision? Like, why did we make the mistake in the first place? And, or why, maybe not even mistake, but like, why do we make a decision? And why do we change our mind? You know, that was kind of the point of my talk is it's okay to be wrong about things.
0: I think it's okay to be wrong is, is just a general statement that we, we should talk about more often. I wanted to also ask you, you know, the evolution of live view has been so, it feels like a whole journey since that first time I heard about it a few years ago that I can't even like pinpoint what conference that was. And I think if you ask this question at any point in time, it would be different. And so I'm, I'm asking again today, if, if somebody were to come to you right now and said, hey, we're ready to make the switch to LiveView, I've got a team, they're ready to learn it. What resource would you recommend for them to learn LiveView today, October 2022?
1: I always struggle with this particular question because the way I learn things is I just do it. I, I just like generate a project and go for it. Like, that's my style of learning. I know I, I'm well aware that it's not, it doesn't work for everyone. <laughs> and I know there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of blog posts, a lot of good screencasts and Elixir Casts and Elixir School. I, I'm not, you know, I'm like, I'm so far away from using those things right now that it's kind of hard for me to know exactly the best way to learn. But in my opinion, I think. From the very beginning of Phoenix, like the generators have always been our primary tool for education, and the guys are okay. I think they're they're good, but they could always use more work. Someone close to it, you cannot. You only see the words or whatever. But I think the generators have always been our first line of education. And if you want to learn Phoenix in Live View, my suggestion is maybe wait till the next version of Phoenix it's coming soon or go off master and then just do mix Phoenix.gen new, you know, and just try it out you know, generate a live view. You know, there's going to be mixed Phoenix. There is a mixed Phoenix.gen live. You can do gender auth, which is fully converted to new live view and the heaks and the components and all that stuff. And just, just play with it and just see what it generated. Because for me as a consultant, I often get earlier, like maybe less nowadays, but like in the first few years of Elixir, when people were starting to use Phoenix in production and startups were starting to use it, for their new thing, they would often bring me in and be like, can you just review our code and like, look at it and tell us what we're doing wrong and, you know, maybe help us with some features and stuff. And like every single time, you know, they were just following what the generators kind of laid the path, the generators laid for them. And it was fine. <laughs> like it's really hard to do the wrong thing with Ecto. Like I know you just had a podcast about Ecto, so I won't like rant and rave about how amazing Ecto is, but like, it's really hard to do the wrong thing with Ecto and that's by design. Like Jose did a fantastic job. And I think the generators, generate you pretty good code for doing most things by default. And you can just learn a lot by just looking at that code and reading it. And like, you know, why did it generate this function? And, and why did it generate it here? And just kind of thinking through like how you might approach it differently. I still think that's one of the best ways to learn how to use it. And you know, just try to build something for fun to do app, you know, whatever is fun for you. And yeah, I, personally, that's my, my, my preferred approach. And of course, reading the docs and the module docs. The module docs are fantastic, and all of the pro- I've yet to find a literature project, other than the Amazon generated ones, aren't amazing. <laughs> they're generated I read, like, I read, they're documentation.
2: So, I read, generated code is a is a
1: rough rough case. Yeah, but like the module docs. This is something. If you're coming from Ruby or JavaScript, the module docs are so much better, and. So often if someone's a Ruby expert or a JavaScript developer and they're coming to Elixir, their first instinct isn't to go read the, the docs because the docs in those languages are generally rough. And they see the ex doc and they think you know Java doc or they think R doc or they think whatever the node docs is. And it's not very helpful. But you should do you should look at the module docs they're great. And you should read the module doc. The top part of every every module has like this big section about tutorials on how to use it, it usually has pitfalls, common problems. A lot of times people have bugs for if they just read the module doc or controlled F through the module doc, they would have found an answer to their question. And those two things, generators and read the module docs, I think are the, the key things for anyone who's using Elixir, especially if they're new.
2: So, so if you've got a, uh, an old or, or, you know, a or legacy, a, a more anything more than six months old is legacy, right? If you have a very static, non-live-viewed non Phoenix app, yeah, you know, so it sounds like your suggestion is start something new, build it out, get a sense as to how live view works. Then what do I do with my old thing? Like do I try to move stuff into it? Do I just build new stuff with it? Like how what do you what do you do with a non live view code base if you want to start to embrace live view?
1: That's a good question. I think it really depends on the business case, right? If if you're making money hands over fists and you're not trying to add a ton of new features and change things and like you're just trying to like architect it so it's doesn't have code smell or you're trying to add some interactivity where you didn't have some previously, then yeah, you know, rewriting it makes some sense. And one of the beauties of like the context and schemas and modules and stuff is like you can go back very far in Phoenix's generated code and the schemas and the context will be the same. There's very little variation in Ecto or big updates in ECTO or contexts for that matter that would require you to like really rewrite. So like a lot of your assuming you follow the patterns of like putting your business logic in the API folder, the lib slash app name folder instead of app name underscore web. And you treated the underscore web as more of your your view layer or your interactivity layer. Like it would be pretty easy to mix gen new a new project, copy over your schema, your your context, your modules, and then just you know make a new front end for the pieces that you care about. You could probably even copy over your con- controllers and stuff too and just replace it one by one that way if you really wanted to, because it will be we are backwards compatible pretty pretty far back for most things so that's one way that's the way i did it recently when i rewrote a project and in, in that was mostly a dead view with some react into live view only because i just kept the schemas in the context and just copy and pasted them including the migrations and stuff and it was fine but yeah if, if you're just if you're still in the phase of like adding new features and you're moving really quickly and you're trying to find product market fit and, and I I don't recommend a rewrite ever. <laughs> it's always painful and it takes always longer. Always takes longer than you think. Even in my view, it's never as, as comfortable as fast as you want it to be. But in my opinion, it's really up to the customer, the business case. Like you really don't want to create a lot of thrashing and waste a bunch of time and money and get what appears to the outside marginal value. Like it's it destroys trust between you and the business and the product owners and the designers and stuff and it's it's a risky game.
2: I love that answer.
0: So we also kind of pulled our team for some questions, some folks who've been working with LiveView more recently. And one of our engineers, shout out Lawrence, wanted to know if there are any thoughts around any tooling coming for LiveView anytime soon, thinking like the time-traveling feature that React Redux has, the Chrome DevTools, some of that higher-level stuff that kind of helps you step through your state and what's going on with your front end. Any thoughts to anything like that?
1: I don't think there's any hard plans internally. I know Michael Crum has been working on sort of an error debugger, like because I think that's one area where we could improve is when live view an error happens to live view it just crashes and then restarts your page. And then you have to look at the console.log or the console to see scroll it's usually open the console, scroll up a bunch to find the actual stack trace and see what actually happened. I don't love that experience. I think we could do better like even just have a drawer pop, like this is just spitballing. None of these features are hardcore in there, but this, you know that's one area where I've I have that itch where it's like, this isn't right. We can do better with errors in particular. Like maybe we just pop up a drawer on the page that shows error and says, you know, reset page or something, you know, reset last known state. Like those are things we can do because we're in Phoenix and it's just a process. And I'm so, sorry, because we're in Elixir and we just have processes and, and, and actors. So we could theoretically do more of that time traveling stuff we don't have any hardcore plans, it would be possible. And I think if someone did it and then released an open source library and it was good, and they're like, you know, again, like he's relatively easy to work with, like, <laughs> like it wouldn't be hard to just accept it or say this is the thing you should be using. But yeah, I think much like there's a plug that area that has this beautiful page when an error happens and it shows you their message in the stack trace and last messages and stuff. I think we could get that in my view relatively easily. It just hasn't been a priority yet. But yeah, that's that's definitely an area where we want to improve. I do think it's possible. It would be tricky and expensive because we can send, you know, if, on key press or button press, there can be a lot of messages going really quickly back and forth and a lot of state changes happening. So it can be kind of unwieldy. Whereas when you're in reactor redo or in something, there's typically not as much state being updated at once. It's usually a button press or like, there can be a lot of state, I guess if you're doing, so I don't know, it, you, it would be possible. It would just be a little intrusive and, in, you'd almost have to make a new live view macro that like wraps all of the events and captures them or it wraps every state change and captures it. And then, you know, it acts as like almost a proxy between, and then you'd want to not load that in production at all because it would be super slow. But yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity to like, sort of like the Django toolbar. I don't know if you're familiar with that or the rails toolbar or the, like, I think we can do more stuff like that especially with telemetry too, we could probably do a lot of stuff with telemetry. And I know there's ideas and thoughts like there's a, there's going to be better logging happening with events and Phoenix. That's a, definitely a priority for Phoenix Live View. I think it's probably even been worked on or done already and might be a master with logging specifically. But I do think that's a that's a fertile area for improvement that we could do just so much. There's so much we could do in that space. It's just almost overwhelming. It's definitely <laughs> yeah. a lot of a lot of possibility in there. But I've definitely felt those errors. Yeah, that was
2: a good answer.
0: And so that's something that our team is asking for. Is there anything that you particularly have been hanging on to, like your, your great uh, hill to die on, the feature you want, you really, really, really want?
1: Well, I mean, the air thing, you definitely picked on it. I think we can do much better with airs. It just, I haven't had, personally had time to work on it. And I think Michael has been also quite busy. I could ask him what the state is of it. I haven't talked to him in a while. Yeah, that, that's one area. I think I, I've always loved air messages. Cause it, the more information you have, the better. We could definitely do better. That's always been a, a bug, bug a bear of mine. I think some of the generators could be better. We could do more with the like. They're the generators are great. They're pretty heavy-handed. Like they generate a lot of stuff, and we don't have the smaller, finer-grain generators like Rails has. And part of that is because every time we add a feature, we have to update hundreds of files, <laughs> hundreds of generator files to make the generator work with the new feature. So it's like almost like an anti thing where it's like it, it, it disincentivizes people wanting to work on new stuff because it's like, oh shoot, I don't have to update every single generator now. And like, that's partially been Chris's life is like, like every, since he's changing so much stuff recently, it's also got to go and update all of the generators. Like the auth generator, like Patrice did just a ton of work to update those to live view. And it's just a tremendous, humongous effort. And it's mostly manual, like going in and updating each thing and making it look right. And people miss stuff. if like, there's a lot of just errors and stuff. The only way to know is to test it a lot in different scenarios. And so that's one of my bugger bears. We could do better with the generators. So I have to do it though. And I just, you know, limited time at the current moment, in my life, I don't have as much time as I did when I was younger and didn't have kids and stuff.
2: Well, and I think that's an important, you know, how important that is, you know, I mean, in, in one sense, it's like you're saying, it's a impediment to some degree, but it's also, like, it also matters, right? And we talked we talked about how those generators help people learn, they help people get started, they help you establish the patterns that are what the, the core framework says are the ones you should use, which will make your life easier in the, in the future, hopefully. The fact that it matters is, is a good thing.
1: Oh, yeah. The, the, the change Chris had in the recent live view with the components file. So like it'll generate a components file, which just has like the H tag and the form tags and the buttons. And it's all the stuff that the generator is just going to use by default. So like previously, when you use the generators, it would generate a bunch of HTML with some classes on it and stuff. And usually the def- first thing you did is go in there and throw it all out and, right. <laughs> and like put your version of it or you just stop using the generators entirely. Or if you're really <laughs> smart, you would make your own mix folder and you'd put or in priv you'd put a templates folder and you'd override the default generator but like almost nobody did that no one knew you even basically could do that so like you just wouldn't use generators you'd most likely copy a controller over a view over and and rename it or something if you were going to do that i think with the components file just having the default stuff and if you want to change what a form looks like across the entire site you change the components file and then you can use generators again because they just use the form and the inputs and then they're already using your styles. I think that makes a big difference in in that sort of usability and uh, open source maintainer usability as well because we can just update one spot to change styles instead of updating a dozen spots.
2: Well, and that kind of changes it from getting started tooling to adding component, you're adding right. stuff. Tooling, exactly, right. right. And, and right, right now it's, like it's, a, very it's a big difference. Started tooling.
1: Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Huge difference.
2: Cool.
0: I think... As cool as it is to do this like deep dive behind the scenes on, on Live View and Phoenix from a core team member, I think the thing I will remember and take away from this, Jason, is just like your, your spidey sense for bugs and just that idea to listen to your gut. Because I feel like a lot of developers will just encounter a bug and they're trying to do something else and will figure out a way to deal with it, get around it, comment out that line of code just for now, And then come back to it and then they don't. And so. uh, Oh, I absolutely do
1: that too. Yeah, I just, (laughs) I just, I I take a note usually or I take a reminder or I just like message. Like I obviously have access to Chris. I'll just, I message him or whatever be like, this sucks. Then I'll go back to fixing it and pushing through. But like, not everyone has that, I know. But I definitely trust your gut. If something feels wrong, it's usually a problem. It's either a problem with documentation, it's a problem with generators, or it's a problem with the library and framework. In my opinion, I still feel that way sometimes about the anonymous function syntax. I wish there was a way we could get could have got past that before version one, like the, the dot parentheses. I hate that, and I've always hated it. But like, there's a lot of things like that that bug me. You know, things that I wish we could do, but are just hard because we're now that yeah, would require version two or a villager, which is not going to happen.
0: Yeah, so maybe asking the audience to just uh, listen to their gut every once in a while. Do you have any other final plugs or ask for the audience, any place where people can reach you on social media or anywhere that they can get involved to contribute and start finding these bugs themselves?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can find me on Twitter. I'm I'm Peregrine like the bird with a P, and I'm on GitHub. I'm Jeregrine with a J because the, the bird was taken on GitHub. And yeah, I mean, right now, like if you want to help with stuff like, you know, Pulling master and trying to install the the generator, the installer locally on some just test projects and stuff and just seeing if it, it outputs exactly what you'd expect for your use case. A lot of us are doing that right now. And there's lots of PR right now with fixing just random spelling errors and issues and, and problems that just got missed because it's a lot of files updates. such so just human nature. That's one way you can help the Phoenix project. You know, if you find a bug like before doing a pr like try or an issue or something and maybe just try taking a look and seeing if you can fix it or figure out what the core issue is because I mean a lot of times it's not that simple but like a lot of times it is as well that simple <laughs> like like it's it's elixir code and the most complex bits are usually in the javascript actually right now and that's just like you know typical. the javascript side of things is extremely difficult and like chasing down bugs. yeah, yeah it's exactly typical and yeah, it's it's so like if, if you're familiar with JavaScript and comfortable with it like there's a lot of room in there for helping out and fixing bugs and finding bugs. And there's a lot of things too, right? Like if you're working on something and the live view reacts just a little weird, that's usually a JavaScript bug or something. Like, like right now, if you're on master and like you just click a link or something, like an error might pop up just, and that's just a browser behavior because it's impossible to know when a user actually leaves a page and the browser decides when to close the web socket or open what. So like there's all kinds of weird stuff that you can, if you feel like something's weird or it doesn't look right and it feels wrong in your gut, like definitely report it on the issue tracker or, and, and if you can isolate it in a new project, like mix Phoenix.gen new project and just isolate it and push that to GitHub. Like that's a humongous, like that saves everyone on the Phoenix team. a ton of time. Cause we can just get pull, run your code, see the error ourselves instead of having to try to like make a use case. Like those things are incredibly helpful. If you can like find whatever bugs you find and isolate it in a, a, a demo project or a test project. You know, just throw away code. No one cares what it looks like. No one's going to review your code and think less of you. Like, the most important thing is getting the bug fixed. And yeah, you know, just try to be nice. You know, everyone's humans. We're all trying our best and doing work for free, basically. So if you can be nice, it goes a long way.
0: Help out. Be nice. Take that away. Trust your gut. Yeah. (laughs) And trust your gut. Exactly. Well, great. This was super informational, and I really appreciate you coming on to chat with us about that. So that's it for today's episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, Jason Stips for joining us. I am Mient, and my co-host is Dan Ivovich. Elixir Wizards is produced by Hanger Studios, and is brought to you by SmartLogic. Here at Smart Logic, we build custom web and mobile software. We work in Elixir, Rails, React, Flutter, and more. Need a piece of custom software built? Hit us up. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Your reviews help us reach new listeners. You can find us on Twitter at SmartLogic, or join the Elixir Wizards Discord. The link is on the podcast page. And see you next week for more on Parsing the Particulars.